You can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at the end of the section of Acts chapter 2 together as we've been working through this sermon series in Acts together. And the question we're going to be addressing today is, what is the church? What is the church? It's, it's a question we often assume the answer to. It's a question that we often um, sort of disregard or discount because there's almost this assumption that we know if we're a part of the church, we don't even bother to ask the question anymore. And so I want to get us brains going a little bit to start. How do we even begin to define the church? What is the church? I mean, we're gathered here together on a Sunday morning. Often people use the language, I went to church, and what are they talking about? I went to a physical building, sing a bunch of songs together, and that was me going to church. But what is the church? How do we define it? And so what's some thoughts? Throw it at me, and then we're going to build this discussion together. What is the church? Yeah, so we're talking about people, first of all, which impl implies we're not talking about what? A building, right? So we're talking about people. What else are we talking about? Yeah, the body of Christ, and how do you become part of the body of Christ? You believe, you trust in Jesus. What is language that Jesus uses to trust in him? Repentance, right? And so a repenting, trusting group of people in Jesus, what else are we talking about here? Or is that the definition of church and we're done? Yeah, the temples of the Holy Spirit, so people that have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that was major in our discussion from last week in Acts, right? Yeah, so disciples, right? Not only being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, but making disciples, which means there's a mission involved. There's something to accomplish, a purpose behind your being. What else are we talking about? The Word, yeah. The dedication to the Word, submitting ourselves to the Word. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, worship. We worship our God. We praise Him. We, we give Him awe and glory. So this is a good starting definition. And again, we, we can go into many concepts of the church. But, but what I want to do is, is something that I was doing as preparing for the study I was looking at how Luke specifically in Acts have been sort of defining and clarifying what the church is. And this is, this is something that I came up that I think really summarizes some of the themes that we've been talking about. And so the church are, are those who have, in other words, the people who have what? Repented and trusted, right? When Jesus first came on the scene, what is the first thing he says? Repent and believe the good news, the kingdom of God is at hand, right? So those who have repented and trusted in Jesus, and now because of that, they receive the gift of what? The gift of the Holy Spirit, which we talked a lot about last week in Pentecost. They receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what is the gift of the Holy Spirit? Again, we talk about all this crazy imagery of the fire above them and the, the massive wind. What was that representing? God, but God specifically what? God's presence, right? God's presence among us. And so as Phil mentioned, we're, we're the mini temples of God. 
We're the very presence of God. So we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to be the presence of God in the world as what? What does Acts 1.8 say? What is the purpose of the disciples and the apostles and the church to be? To be witnesses. Witnesses to the gospel. And so again, there's many ways to define the church and many imageries that come from Scripture. But as we've come to this point in, the, in Acts, I think this is some of the major themes that Luke has brought up for the church. And so we see the church are those who have repented and trusted in Jesus and now receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to be the presence of God in the world as witnesses to the gospel. And as Peter preaches his sermon at Pentecost, what does he call the people to do? He says, repent and be baptized. And how many people came to faith that day? 3,000. And the question we now face then and the question we have to wrestle with is after these 3,000 people come to faith, as they give their allegiance to Jesus shown through their baptism, as they become followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, the question is then, what happens next? How are these people changed by the gospel? How does following Jesus reorient their life? All these people become followers of Jesus. Did their lives change? How did they begin to function? What is going to be different about them? And Luke here, now in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, begins to give us an answer to that question. And Luke here begins to say, those people who repent and trust Jesus and center their lives around Jesus, this is the implication of what happens to them. When they allow the Holy Spirit to really redefine and reevaluate their lives and recreate them to the people God created them to be, this is what it looks like. And so when we look at the passage this morning, when we study this story of the early church, we're talking about the implications of what it means to be followers of Jesus, to be the church. And so I think the scripture this morning becomes a really solid foundation to answering that question of what is the church. And so let's read this passage together. Let's just meditate on it together. Let's, let's bring some implications out of it. And this is what the text says. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And it says, and they, what? Devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Amen? That sounds like a pretty beautiful church, doesn't it? Who wants to be part of a community like that? 
And this is what happens when the Holy Spirit takes over. This is what happens when people commit their lives to Jesus. The very aspect of communal life gets completely changed. And so what do we see them doing? We see devotion, right? That's the main thing that we see transformed from the Holy Spirit and the power of following Jesus is devotion. In other words, this is what they committed their lives to. This is everything that drove their purpose and meaning and value. It means that they weren't just going through the mission of some spiritual motion, uh, but they were actually invested and engaged in what God had them to do. And so what we're talking about is this ongoing, habitual, continual lifestyle of the early church. And we see these group of people come together and actually build their lives on the reality that God is present with them, and this is what happens. All these beautiful things. Now, I want to bring out five things specifically this morning. Uh, There's a lot to bring out of this passage of what the actual church was involved in and what they were doing. Uh, For those of you in community groups, uh, and I hope everyone gets involved in a community group, but one of your discussion questions is going to be, what are all the implications of what the church was doing? What were all the activities they were taking part of? And there's at least 10 in this passage, okay? So try and get there at least that far with your community groups. If I preach all 10 specifically right now, we're going to have a longer service than we did last week. And so, and what was last week? Like two hours? So we won't go there. (laughs) But... I want to look at five specifically today. Five realities of what the church is supposed to be. Five things which the Holy Spirit produces in the life of the church. And five things that we're called to be devoted to. And so what's the first thing we see? Verse 42, they devoted themselves to what? To the? What's the first thing? To the apostles' teaching. What's the implication here? There's this devotion to learning. They were devoted. They were learning. I mean, d- disciple is a word we often use around church, isn't it? But, but what is the sort of a non-Christianese version of defining discipleship? Uh, I'm trying to help you guys out with the answer up there. <laughs> a learner, Right? A disciple is someone who is learning from a teacher, is us learning. There's this educational aspect to it. There's this knowledge aspect to it. There's this life transformation aspect to it. And so there's this aspect of learning. They devoted themselves to learning. They dug in. They spent time. They reflected. They thought. They meditated. They wrestled. This is the mind of the life of the church is continually being Learners, processing everything. Now, what are they learning about specifically? What does the passage say? The? No, what are they learning about specifically? The apostles' teaching, right? What are we talking about when we're talking about the apostles' teaching? Well, we're, we're talking about an explanation of who Jesus is and what he's done, Right? That's what the early church was figuring out. Jesus comes and he breaks down all these paradigms of who they were expecting him to be. And the early church said, we have to figure this out. 
And the apostles are the ones who are teaching and educating who Jesus was. And so they're learning about Jesus. They're, they're learning about the story of God in history. They're learning about God's mission of redemption and reconciliation. They're learning about the Bible. They're learning how to fit their lives into the story of God. And so there's this process of learning going on for the disciples. And the question is, well, why are they learning? So they can teach too, so they can make disciples, right? But before that, they're, they're, they have to go through the process of learning. Why? Because is each and every one of us, does anyone exist in history that just has an innate knowledge of Jesus? No. None, none of us come out of the womb with this concept of who God is and who Jesus is. What do we have to do? We have to be taught. We have to learn. We have to understand. It doesn't come naturally to us. And so they're, they're this process of trying to figure out who Jesus is. And this is why when we read in the middle of Acts 2, what's the first thing that Peter does after Pentecost? He begins to preach. He begins to teach. He begins to explain. He begins to clarify all these things about who Jesus was. And so the disciples and the apostles and the early church was committed to this understanding that we have to be learners, okay? Now, how many of you did not enjoy high school or college, right? Sitting in a class, there's a few of you, right? And, and to that I say, it, when we talk about learning, this is the importance of community because so many of us have just a concept of intellectual learning and knowledge, right? And purely information. But the knowledge of Jesus is not just information, right? We're not just talking about a philosophy that Jesus taught and we just have to know it. No, this is a transformational learning. This is something that changes your life. This is something that impacts everything about you. And so this is what they were pursuing as the church. And so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What is the second thing they devoted themselves to? Fellowship. Now, what are we talking about when we talk about fellowship? We, we don't usually use that language today, do we? Who, when's the last time someone used fellowship? Right? Again, it's sort of this Christian language. Any Lord of the Rings fans? Right? So a few of you might use that language, the fellowship of the rings, right? So that might be part of your vocabulary. But in, in the general culture, we don't really use this language of fellowship. So what are we talking about? Well, a word that's close to it perhaps is hospitality. And when we talk about hospitality, what are we talking about? Welcoming the... Any guesses? Welcoming the stranger. Welcoming someone into your home, right? Welcoming someone you don't know. And so hospitality is bringing these people in. And so a similar definition, fellowship then, is welcoming believers into your lives. It's building a deeper relationship with Christians. So hospitality is this aspect of where we welcome strangers, but fellowship is welcoming others, believers, into our life to experience life. And so what we see them doing is breaking bread and praying together. They're doing all these things together. They're going to the temple together. They're gathering in their homes together. There's this language of togetherness all throughout the book of Acts, but even in this passage. And so you get this idea 
of community here. You get this idea of togetherness. And so fellowship then is really just doing life together as the church. Now, what's the difficult thing about fellowship? What keeps us from fellowship today in our modern culture? We, we are highly selfish and we're highly individualistic, right? Anyone want confession time? Anyone confess to that? Right? We need to confess in the church, right? Confession time. We function in our relationships selfishly and individualistically, which means that I don't want anyone else telling me what to do, right? I make my own decisions. I think my own thoughts. I do my own things, and no one can tell me otherwise. Is that a hindrance to fellowship? 100%. It's the exact opposite of fellowship. You become the center of your own little selfish universe, and our culture, again, has this uh, mentality that we're accountable to no one. And yet, what we see in the early church is the complete opposite. Now, what changes that? How do we move past our selfish, individualistic mentality? The power of what? What's our only hope? The Holy Spirit coming into our lives, bringing conviction. And so when we talk about fellowship, the, the Bible uses language like confessing our sins to one another, right? Confession to one another, bear one another's burdens. It means we don't just share our resources. I mean, that's a primary example in this passage. It's much more than just sharing resources. It's sharing yourself with others and allowing people into your life. And so fellowship means beyond looking to yourself and the well-being of others and submitting yourself to a community of accountability. Now, who really likes accountability in their life? Anyone? See, I, I think we need to come to a place where we see the value of accountability. We have to see the value of accountability. And the, the question we all face is, where is that accountability? Because, we, we, again, we think, oh, no, I'll make decisions for myself and I'll become accountable to myself, but do you really think that you're the smartest person in your life? <laughs> With some of the decisions you made, do you, do you think you've made the wisest decisions that others would not help you in? Like, do you think that you really have the best perspective on your life? Do you think you live outside of denial? Do you think that you justify your behavior sometime? See, this is why we need accountability. This is why we need fellowship to actually draw us together as a church because fellowship becomes almost active healing for a community because fellowship takes us out of this selfish, individualistic mentality and draws us together in accountability to one another for doing life together. So we need it. We desperately need it. It's crucial for us as the church. What's the other major thing we see the church devoted to? Worship. Amen. And I, and I love this. I love this phrase in, in verses 43 of chapter 2. What's experiencing as they're fellowshipping and gathering together and devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and praying? 
what happens? And well, before that, that's close too, though, but an awe came upon every soul. Isn't that powerful? And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs being done through the apostles. And, and so you get this posture of awe. You get this posture of how amazing is our God. You get this posture of seeing God do all these mighty, beautiful things, and you're just blown away by that. You're seeing people get healed, and you see God answering prayer, and you see people getting saved, and you see people getting baptized, and you say, God is at work. We worship Him. We love that He is involved, and they're filled us with this awe and gladness over everything. And it goes on to say in verse 47 as well, it says that they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And praising God, that's the language of worship, right? That's the language of, of giving God worth. And, and what we're talking about here is the, the worthiness of who God is, the worthiness of his character, the worthiness of his attributes. And we realize that the early church realized that nothing is worthy of worship other than who? Other than? You guys got to get this or we fail everything. Who's the only one worthy of worship? God. And they're in awe over it. And they're fascinated by it. They realize nothing is worth worshiping but Jesus. There's no one like Jesus. No one does what Jesus does. He alone is worthy of our worship. And what we're talking about is this life of committed to worship is a life that is committed to acknowledging the worth of God, which means that everything else doesn't even compare to the worth that God has on your life. And, and here's the truth we all need to wrestle with and battle with, is each and every one of us are worshipers. Even if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. You still worship something. You still live for something. You still dedicate your time and energy and resources to something. You're giving something worth you're going to worship someone in your life, whether that's a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse or a child. You're going to worship something, whether it's job or your health or beauty or a sports team or your income. You're going to worship. You're going to dedicate your life to something. But guess what? None of those things compare at all to the worth of following Jesus. And so when we think about what we're going to give our life to and our energy and our time and our talent and our treasure, we have to realize first and foremost there's only one thing in our existence that's actually worthy of our worship. And that is again who? God. Nothing else will matter in light of that. And so here we see the praise of God and they acknowledge the greatness of Jesus and we too acknowledge that He alone is worthy of our worship. So what's another thing that we see the early life of the church devoted to? Witness. Now again, Jesus promised in Acts 1.8, He's going to send His disciples around the world 
And what is the calling to which they have? They are called to be what? Witnesses. Witnesses to the gospel. Witnesses to what God has done. And and what we see as they embrace this communal life together, they enjoyed the favor of all the people, and they're growing daily. Why? Because they're talking about Jesus. And and they're living a life transformed by Jesus. And, And what we see is there's this radiance and beauty in this Christian community that was so great, people were attracted to it. And you see all these non believers in this context saying, What is going on here? They had the favor of the people. Now, when you think about this, when you have a people that are so devoted to Jesus that they'll suffer for Him, that they'll no longer live for themselves but live for others, that they'll give themselves to others, that they are so joyful in Jesus that they don't need all these resources and toys and money to make them happy, when they believe so strongly that God, that their service is characterized by prayer and a sense of God's presence, People believe, people see, people witness the beauty of a Christian community. Amen? Now, do we fail at this a lot? Do we? Many times. We, we constantly fail at this. But when we're succeeding at this, when we're living in light of this, when we're actually submitting ourselves to the Scripture and living as the church that God created us to be, that creates a witness creates an apologetic for the gospel. And the powerful thing is we see all these people being added to the church, adding to the gathering as the church worships and witnesses. And then here's another massive quality of the church. They served. They served time and energy, but specifically in this passage, They talk about the service of generosity. They just give everything away. And it says here that the people were so unbelievably generous that anybody who was in need was taken care of. And they gave with glad and generous hearts. They gave all their money away and they were happy because they had found something better than money. They had found something more worthy than the pursuit of money in Jesus. And this is the exact opposite of where we are as a culture, right? And I'm guilty of this too at times because we talk a lot more about saving and investing than we do about generosity, don't we? We get so focused on our finances and we look at our money situation, we say, how am I going to save for this? How do I invest for this? How do I do all this? And one thing we have to consider is where am I being generous? Who are people that need resources that I can give away? And I think one of the most beautiful things that I get to witness as as a pastor and even for us as a board is we get to see so much generosity of this church, amen? You guys are incredibly generous people. And this is something, a culture that we have to hold on to and remind ourselves is generosity towards everyone taking care of everyone, making sure that no one is in need, making sure that everyone is taken care of, making sure that no one is going through hardship without the support of the church. And and really in generosity, what we're remembering and serving through money and finances, we're remembering that Jesus is the most generous giver ever. And if we're going to follow him and follow his example, we have to be extremely generous people. 
I mean, let's just brainstorm for a second, just contemplate how generous is our God. What has God given us as humanity? Let's just brainstorm. Maybe one person at a time louder. I hear a lot of mumbles, but it's hard to differentiate. What has God given us? He's given us His Son. He's given us salvation even though we rebelled and rejected Him, right? What else has God given us? Life everlasting or just life in general. (laughs) Just life itself is a gift. Breathing, the very breath that we breathe is a gift of God. Food, yeah, just nourishment and enjoyment of food and such a variety of tastes and contexts and cultures that have so many pathways to understanding food, right? He's given us purpose. He's given us this meaning in life. We, we don't have to live with, with a sense of fatalistic mentality. We don't have to live as the atheists do where nothing means anything. We actually have purpose and meaning in life. What else? He gave us, well, Cheryl, now you just ruined the conversation. <laughs> he gave us everything, but you're right. You're 100% right. Everything, everything that we have is from God. And when you take that mentality and you say that, okay, everything I have is of God, even when we, again, want to think in this selfish, individualistic mentality where I created all these things in my life and I made all these things, no, you could do nothing without what God has given you. We, we come back to the point of saying, if God is, is generous where he has given us literally everything, then when we look at people around us, inside the church and outside the church, and we say, there's people in need. There's people that need support. There's people that maybe need not only financial, but other means to help them get through. Who are we to hold back resources? Who are we to hold things and hoard things for ourselves when we serve a God who gives everything to us? And the early church realized that they they needed to serve one another. They needed to commit their lives to one another. And we see God's people becoming hugely generous because they knew Jesus. And so this is a beautiful framework then of what we have. Let Let me close by saying this. When we look at the early church, we see this description of what happens right off the Right off the start. As soon as people give allegiance to King Jesus, as soon as they experience the power of the Holy Spirit, as soon as they begin to gather as the church, this is the implication. This is what happens. And this is what's supposed to happen. This is the power of God at work. And I want to remind us that when we read this Scripture and we look at this passage, this this Scripture isn't just written... Luke didn't just record this history so that we would know what happened in history. Luke is telling us and God is revealing to us and the scripture is written so that we can be challenged and convicted and inspired to be the church that God created us to be. Amen? What does that mean? We have to devote ourselves to these things. We have to live with a commitment and a purpose behind these things. We have to pursue them with every fabric of our being. 
And, and, and think of it from this perspective too. If, if we only have one or two out of the five, we're missing a lot of what it means to be the people of God, right? If we are just a learning church and we have no fellowship, something's going to be lacking, right? We become a bunch of intellectual snobs without actually engaging life together, right? And if we just have witness without learning and we want to talk about Jesus and we want to share Jesus, but we have no idea who Jesus is and we haven't actually learned about him, are we going to be very effective? No. And if we just give everything away and we're generous, but it's not coming from a heart of worship, it's just coming from a heart of when I give things away, it makes me feel better about myself. Are we missing something? And so we as a church, when we think about our life and activity together as Entwistle Community Church, there has to be a balance here. There has to be synchronicity between these five things. There has to be all of these elements present in reality around us for us to be the church that God has called us to be. And so let me pray to that extent for us, and I'm going to call up the team as I do. We're going to spend some time in reflection and prayer. Gracious Father, first of all, we come before you in thanksgiving because you have provided the means to be this type of community. Lord, in our own power, in our own strength, in our own wisdom, we could never become this community that we read about. But Lord, when we follow you, and we are empowered by your Holy Spirit, this makes this possible. And so we, pro, we pray that we would be a church that is completely and utterly devoted to these things so that your name could be glorified among us and so that many people would come to a saving knowledge of who you are and so that many lives can be transformed for their good and your glory. And so, Lord, we pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted. We pray that you would inspire us where we need to be inspired. And we pray that you would teach us where we need to be taught so that we can be not just individual Christians, but a church, your people, your body that looks glorious to the community around us. Lord, we just thank you for making that means possible. By your spirit, we pray. Amen.